As we get ever closer to the start of the Winter Triathlon and Duathlon World Championships in Andorra at the start of February, episode 54 of the podcast welcomes an American para-athlete who is no stranger to the snow herself, having already straddled the worlds of triathlon and Nordic skiing to huge success with Paralympic gold in Pyeongchang in 2018, and again on the line at the end of an incredible women's PTWC category race at Tokyo 2020 against our guest from way back in episode 5, Australian Lauren Parker. Today on the World Triathlon Podcast, we welcome 2020 Summer Paralympic Triathlon Champion and 2018 Winter Paralympic Nordic Ski Champion. She's a three-time Paratriathlon World Champion, just recently crowned Paranordic Ski World Champion, a Biathlon World Champion. Will soon be on her way to China, where she is looking to defend her Winter Paralympic titles at Beijing 2022. And it's still pretty fresh from one of the most tense and tight wins you will ever see in a race at Tokyo 2020. She is the USA's Kendall Gretsch. Kendall, hello. How are you and where are you? Uh, hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I am doing good. I'm in Lillehammer, Norway right now um, for our world championships. Um, yeah, they were postponed, postponed from last year because of COVID. So a little bit, I guess, weird or non-normal situation to have a world championships the same year as the games but yeah here we are here we are um and anything we're missing off that list of sports that you're either smashing or have smashed <laughs> <laughs> no I, I don't think so I mean that's like five sports in <laughs> itself so <laughs> that should be enough no no for sure no I mean, obviously you were a you were a swimmer first and foremost right but was that was that kind of to a level of locally very good college and so on yeah not even college I just swam you know like my neighborhood swim team and then um in high school but but yeah honestly it wasn't really serious for me at that point it was just kind of like a fun thing that I really enjoyed doing and it was a great way um you know to like make friends and in high school and both my sisters were athletic too and so I was like well they did it I'll do it too um but yeah not not really like a serious endeavor I guess at that point right right so uh, yeah from a, a sporty family were you is it it was down as Grove is that where you that was the neighborhood the, the kind of like outskirts of Chicago is that right yeah um, yeah yeah one of the sprawling suburbs I guess of Chicago <laughs> but but yeah do you still have family there? Do you still live there? Is that where you kind of gravitate back to when you're not traveling the world? Yeah, so most of my family actually still lives in the Chicago area. Um, and so, so yeah, when I'm, I guess, not training or competing and I have some off time, um, that's where I go back to um, for family is uh, Chicago area and around there. Mm -hmm. But did, uh, did either of your sisters, sorry, did you say you two sisters? both sporty yeah did yeah, either yeah. of them kind of kick on to 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 do it to a same level similar level or or are you the one that is kind of your mum's kind of you come back and she's like so Kendall when are you gonna stay here for a little while and <laughs> not jet off somewhere else yeah sorry mom yeah uh I I am definitely not winning the favorite daughter category <laughs> in terms of staying home um because yeah both of my sisters now live in Chicago and so we're very close to my parents that are still there. So I'm the one that's kind of where in the world is Kendall. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it's, um, 
yeah, my family is super supportive of, of everything that I'm doing. And so I know they really love watching all the races. Like even now they're, they're, my parents are waking up at like 4am to live stream our races here. Um, or like, yeah, they're not checking their phones at all beforehand because they don't want to ruin the result before they can watch it. Um, yeah. Uh, amazing. Well, I um, want to talk about Tokyo, obviously, but while we're talking about your mom, like what, what was their reaction to that finish which if anybody's not seen it then you need to go on youtube and, and check it out but um and we'll we'll pick through the race a little bit later on but yeah just what was your your mum's reaction after what presumably must have put a, a finish that would have put her through the ringer <laughs> mentally emotionally everything yes yeah no my my family had um like a bunch of family and friends over to my parents house to watch the race and um, yeah, it's fun because I have some videos of them all watching the race live and like, yeah, just going crazy when they saw saw the ending of it. And I swear, I think my dad has probably watched that ending like <laughs> daily <laughs> since then. But yeah, um, it yeah, it was cool. Like I think, um, you know, luckily the coverage of the games is is really getting pretty good for the Paralympics. And so it was fun knowing that they were able to all watch it live and together as a family since they couldn't be there in Tokyo. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, you know, it's a unique thing that we have from this experience of people not being there is now I have this collection of videos of just everyone watching and reacting to the race, which is pretty, pretty special for me to have now. Yeah. To see your parents just kind of presumably like shouting at a tv from pretty close quarters <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> um so yeah less than two months now till the beijing how are things shaping up so yeah obviously this is you know another the other string to your to your sporting bow is is the winter paralympics uh well the winter the nordic skiing um is that something that just kind of came quite naturally given Chicago, obviously, summer, nice, very green, outdoorsy, seems quite triathlon friendly. And then winter, lots of snow on your doorstep. And uh, well, I don't know, actually, mountains, not far, not too far. Uh, no, not really. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I guess, yeah, growing up in Chicago, like, to be honest, I would say most people don't really enjoy the winter there because um, yeah, like outside of being a kid, we don't really do much with the snow, <laughs> which is such a shame. So it's kind of just this thing that's like um, an, annoyance. an annoyance, yeah, in the winter. But when I was done with college, I moved to um, Wisconsin um, and yeah, just like a few hours north from, from Chicago. And um, yeah, they definitely embraced the winter lifestyle a little bit more there. So there were places where I could cross country ski, um, and that's where I kind of got into Nordic skiing. There was an adaptive ski program there that introduced me to cross-country skiing. Um, and then yeah, I was introduced to um, the like the Paranordic, US Paranordic team while I was living there. Um, so yeah, I guess my background in Chicago, <laughs> I didn't really, I wasn't a big fan of winter, but now, now that I actually have like an activity that I love to do in the winter. Um, yeah, it's much more enjoyable. Yeah. 
and did you fall, find yourself falling in love with it pretty quickly? I mean, yeah, it's, it's yeah, very uh, yeah, I did. I mean, I think there like there are a lot of similar reasons why I love Nordic skiing. Um, I guess are they're the same as why I love triathlon. So just being able to be outside and compete outside and um, I say like explore the world through sport and um, yeah it's it's been a really cool opportunity for both sides of, of sport um, and yeah I think Nordic skiing like we're yeah we're in the mountains a lot of the time or areas that are pretty mountainous and and that's really appealing to me so um, yeah it was it was a pretty immediate thing that I fell in love love with and then I guess from the sporting aspect of it it's you know endurance sport so that appealed to me coming from triathlon or my experience at triathlon yeah and when you say like your first kind of experience of adaptive Nordic skiing like adaptive means that there's a facility there that can kind of tailor to most disabilities is that right like what how does that mean literally because I remember I saw you said that you only came across adaptive triathlon in college I think was that right or or was it swimming so I... yeah yeah well I guess both um yeah I guess I I grew up swimming but didn't really do anything in like the adaptive world yeah. until I was in college um and yeah kind of the same time I started doing a couple swimming things but also was introduced to triathlon paratriathlon um, when I was in college. Uh, but yeah, I guess in terms of adaptive skiing, I, I use what's called a sit ski. Um, so when I'm skiing, I'm sitting down and, um, yeah, it's just all arm, arm motion. And so, so yeah, this, this program, um, where I live, they had all of that equipment. So they had sit skis that you could use, um, just kind of familiar with like, what a sit ski was, how you would ski in it, giving me some pointers and introduction into how to, to ski in a sit ski. Um, but yeah, there's other, I guess, like the other classifications within, within skiing, you can have people that are skiing with like one pole, um, if they're a standing skier, there's visually impaired skiers. So they're just familiar with kind of that whole range of like, what are options in order to cross-country ski if you have any sort of disability yeah and in terms of like that the first uh hand cycle that you came across in the first racing wheelchair presumably they were not anything like as high tech as the ones that you're racing in at tokyo or whatever or, or were they were they still quite yeah that first time you got in one were you like oh, okay this this feels good like you know I, it felt like a good fit and you were just like this is this is something for me but then presumably like the first time you go from using a, a fairly rudimentary one to a state-of-the-art one must be quite a massive leap as well yes oh yeah no totally like I think looking back at the equipment that I started out on is is pretty funny to see um, because yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's just like bulky and it's not really built for you. Whereas now in both sports, the equipment that I have is like, yeah, the, the sit ski I have is a custom carbon built sit ski where it's like an exact mold of my body. And, um, yeah, obviously the racing wheelchair is built just for me. And so, so yeah, those things make a difference. And, um, yeah, when you're at, you know, the 
the top level, you have to have that that equipment. Um, but yeah, so it, it is funny to look back at, at pictures from when I first started. Are they uh, are these kind of small companies that it's not like these are like a specialized or a roker or whatever that have a, 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 like a different department or someone that works with them or is the, are these totally separate companies that that make the, the racing? yeah yeah I think it's it's interesting because um I guess like the equipment that I use for triathlon the hand cycle and the racing wheelchair there's I would say like a very limited number of companies on where you can buy that equipment and so pretty much everyone is using those pieces of equipment um, like there's some variability but it's pretty pretty standard across the field mm -hmm. whereas nordic skiing is completely opposite everyone there's not like one company that's making them everyone's custom building them and so so yeah even with within the field here you look around and there's just like a massive variation of of what people's sit skis are um, yeah, like the the British team, they they just worked with a Formula One team to design their sit skis for this year. Um, so so yeah, they have these like super fancy uh, carbon carbon sit skis, and then you know other other people will just have just looks like a metal seat. <laughs> right. Um, but but yeah, it kind of works for everyone. Um, yeah. Yeah, which is funny. It really it's more about the skis, um, like. The, the ski technology is is like insane the amount of work that goes into like when we're traveling to events here we'll have maybe 30 to 40 pairs of skis that we bring as a team and uh, we have techs that are working on the skis and waxing them and testing them daily if not twice a day to pick out the exact perfect pair of skis and so that's where like really the technology side of things come comes to play is is the pair of skis that you're on. So you're in Lillehammer. The world champs are are ongoing or have happened. You you hoovered up two goals, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, we have two more races to go. Right. Um, so yeah, we're kind of uh, getting towards the end of of the world championships. Um, I think that's maybe one thing that's a little bit different than triathlon. Uh, instead of just one race, we have. Um, I guess at this competition we have seven. So quite a different range of um I guess number of races but yeah two left to go and are the fields bigger as well much bigger or how, you know how does that look yeah I would say they are they are pretty big um yeah I guess the the races that I've been in so far have ranged I think from like 12 to 20 people mm -hmm. in my races whereas um, yeah, typically for our triathlons, they limit the number of people that are in the races. And usually it's like six or seven. I think Tokyo, we had 11. Um, so, so yeah, a, a little bit bigger rift deals here. And yeah, so it wouldn't, you wouldn't normally have this quite this heavier a schedule ahead of a Paralympics and particularly kind of coming straight out of Tokyo as well. So how, yeah did you did you presumably had a bit of time off after Tokyo before knowing that this sort of winter schedule was was, was coming um ahead of Tokyo like were you were you in the, the shape of your life heading into Tokyo was everything kind of feeling good and and then 
that presumably carries over somewhat to, to now and you're despite a bit of a break you're building on a very very good level again are you yeah and I think um that's that's what works well with doing the two sports I think like it sounds a little bit crazy to be <laughs> to be doing two sports and and every year but yeah the 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 fitness I guess and the base that you're building between the two season really does translate um it's more just the sport specific strength that you're kind of building up and readjusting to every single year um so yeah I would definitely say I was in the shape of my life before Tokyo um and yeah I'm I've been doing this transition between the two seasons for the last four years um so I'm pretty familiar with that I would just say that the the bigger difference is that like mentally just preparing for two two games in six months and um yeah there's a lot of a lot of mental drain going into preparing for Tokyo and um again for Beijing and so so yeah I I did take a you know like a a pretty solid two-week break where I, I really wasn't doing anything and um needed to reset because yeah I just knew not just physically but mentally it was going to be a pretty big strain yeah what was still to come around the corner and your initial uh move towards the Nordic skiing was that am I right in thinking that was also born partly out of the women's PTWC category not being selected for for Rio and rather than dwelling you just saw Pyeongchang as the next (laughs) the next challenge yeah, yeah, it was kind of this perfect storm of timing. Um, I I just moved um, to the, this place. I had an adaptive ski program, and they made the announcement that the of for the classes that were going to be in Rio, and mine wasn't included. Mm. Um, and then at the same time, the director at the time for the Nordic skiing program he reached out and he knew that I didn't have a medal opportunity anymore in Rio and said hey you know you should come we have a camp coming up you should try out Nordic skiing um it's another endurance sport and it will give you an opportunity to go to the games and potentially medal and so um yeah I think it was it was all of those things kind of aligned at the same time I was somewhere where I could train and had access to snow um and yeah I went to that first camp and really knew like okay this is this is a sport that I really, it wasn't just like, oh, here's a, a way that I can go to the games. It was a, a sport that I was really going to love. Um, but I also got a chance to go to the games. Yeah. Is that something that has been a, a part of your personality, would you say for, you know, since, since being a kid, like rather than sort of dwelling or, or being like, okay, well, let's give it another four years and wait and see, just kind of grabbing the ball by the horns and seizing the opportunities. Yeah, I, I would say I've, I've always been pretty determined and up for a challenge. Um, yeah. So whether it was like in school or um, yeah, even just as a kid, like I, I hated people telling me I couldn't do something. And so um, yeah, like, even in gym class, I was often told like, oh, Kendall, like we're running the mile today. You don't have to run the mile. And I was like, no, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think just the mentality of like tackling a challenge has been something that um, 
yeah, been part of me for a while. So the spina bifida is what it's tissue built up on the spinal cord that then needs to be operated on and, and essentially your legs weren't able to grow in the same way as other people's, right? Is that? Yeah, yeah. So when I was born, there was um, like fatty tissue around my spinal cord. Um, and so that impacted, yeah, just like the nerve and muscle development of that area of my spinal cord. Um, so yeah, it, you know, it's something that I've had my entire life. Um, and, and yeah, I think, I think that definitely sets you up to have a different mindset about it versus, you know, maybe someone that acquires the, their disability later in life. Like this is literally all I've known. Um, and so you're just like, you're used to adapting. And I think, um, yeah, you kind of, it, it's so second nature that you're not really thinking about it as like, oh, I need to overcome these things. It's like, no, I just need to live my life. And, and yeah, so you're doing these things that are adapting with, without even realizing that you're doing it. Um, yeah. Mm. But you were, did it deteriorate over time if you were able to run a mile, presumably, but, but using a, a stick or did you not, as a kid, did you not have to, and then it kind of deteriorated or? Yeah, yeah, so I, um, I used to have more function in my legs. I just use like leg braces. And then um, before high school, I had what's called a retethering. And so basically the tissue builds up again around your spinal cord. They went in and um, another operation and, and removed that tissue. Um, but yeah, and then since then, I primarily walk around with leg braces and crutches. Um, but yeah, when I'm competing, I compete in the wheelchair categories hmm. um so yeah i guess that you know that would be one one change that i had in my function um growing up so so i think that helped as a kid you know i was able to do be a little bit more active and and i guess like a traditional sense in that um yeah like i played softball and basketball and with um yeah just like my regular like neighborhood team so um yeah do you say talk about kind of being the favorite daughter and, and so on or, or not <laughs> um and yeah I guess if you are born with something like spider bifida then your parents are perhaps inevitably going to be more careful or caring or worried about you or for you and, and then when you're the one daughter that flee flees the nest like the the freer um that I suppose on the one hand, it must make your mum incredibly happy that it hasn't held you back in any way and you're doing this. And then the other probably make her worry even more. Like, you know, it's a whole nother. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, like my parents were awesome growing up. Like they didn't really like limit me in the activities that I was, I was doing. Um, so yeah, I think as much probably as my mom worried like I, I think that was probably more because I was the youngest child and not necessarily because I had a disability so um but yeah and I think it's also just part of her nature if she's a worrier um which is which is I don't know I, I kind of tease her about it sometimes on how much she's worried and stressed out at times I have a, a very opposite personality I would say um 
but but yeah I think um them being able to see me compete and watching that me race around the world is uh hopefully you know some reassurance that I'm okay (laughs) (laughs) sure but yeah I get the balance between encouraging your young daughter to to push herself and and do everything and at the same time I mean essentially be very worried about (laughs) about your physical and and as a result kind of mental well-being right it must have been it must be a very difficult balance to to strike yeah yeah but they uh they do like a really good job of it because (laughs) yeah I I I think a lot of times like people assume that like you had to have this like big struggle in your life and like oh like maybe I don't know like yeah I don't know that there's like this assumed hardship that you had Mm. and um I like really didn't (laughs) I had like a very normal normal childhood and and upbringing and um yeah like credit to my parents on that and my family and just our whole attitude of about it I guess um because yeah it was just it was normal and like not really a thing (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah I I mean are there things like that 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 annoy you like the way that I don't know the the sport is presented sometimes or certain terminologies that are used or presumptions that are made um because I suppose it's it's almost like in people's nature to be slightly careful about what they say and how they say it and maybe that alone is is annoying to you like you know are there are there certain things that you'd like to see changed or attitudes the way that people approach it yeah I think I think maybe just like the general misunderstanding of like what people are capable of sometimes is frustrating um or that like people have their own autonomy I think I like to assume that people are always coming from a place of like not trying to harm people or like be offensive. They just like want to help. But but sometimes it's frustrating when someone like runs up to you and be like, oh, can I help? And you say no, but yet they like still try to help you. Um, like that's frustrating. And so, yeah, I think um, there's a lot of underestimating that happens in our world because people see something that's different than what they are and they can't imagine like themselves necessarily in that situation and feeling like capable on their own um and so yeah I think just bringing more awareness to parasport is such a great way to to start a conversation about these things and really start proving how capable and how athletic we are um because yeah it's it's a great way for people to see to see that and um to see like the capability that that everyone has despite and you know any sort of disability or challenge that they might have Mm. yeah so your your kind of journey to becoming a world and paralympic champion is is not really the result of a kind of a moment or a conversation with someone or like an you know something that kind of some made you click it was just it's actually been a very natural progression 
of discovery of a sport that you're very good at and yeah or yeah, several I five mean, sports there, there was maybe a moment because I think I for like for a while I had no idea what parasport was and I had no understanding or like context of of what it could be I remember when I was young and maybe like third grade someone came up to me at a swim meet and said hey would like have you ever thought about doing an adaptive swim thing or I mean this is my like third grade recollection but she had said something about it and I was like no I don't need that <laughs> like I'm I'm here with my friends like why would I do that and so I just didn't realize like what this whole world was um and so it really wasn't until I was in college that I that I did I I read an article about someone that was going to be competing in in London um, for swimming and they were they were training with their their college swim team and I think that was the first time where it really struck me that like this was this wasn't like this was a really high level of sport and that it could be an avenue to compete at a high level and compete against other people on a level playing field where I wasn't just competing with myself. Um, and so, yeah, I think everything, you know, kind of how, how I grew up being active, all of that has led to me being able to be pretty successful in sport. Um, but there was definitely kind of this shift and this awakening and understanding um, when I was in college of like, what, what was possible. And then, it was obviously a very rapid kind of ascension in, in paratriathlon as well for you. You know, you definitely kind of <laughs> took it, took it flying. And 2014 was your first full season, right? Mm -hmm. On the world championships. Su successfully defended that title in Chicago in 2015, uh, which must've been, I mean, for your, defending your title in your hometown presumably family there and everything does yeah. that still kind of rank as as one of the all-time great moments in your career definitely yeah that was such a cool experience because yeah my a bunch of my family was there um my niece was like three weeks old at the time she was there and yeah just friends were there and 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 yeah that was such a special special experience it, it, like looking back now it seems like that was so long ago um and things have changed so much in our sport like it's advanced so much since then and I think I think that's been the awesome thing for me is that every single year it, it becomes harder and harder and it and like that's my favorite thing is that that means that the sport is growing and more people are finding out about paratriathlon and getting into it and, um, you know, gaining the resources to be competitive. And um, it's just become more and more exciting every year. You know, Rio probably really helped give like a destination for people's dreams or kind of like, this is, this is possible, like this is a sport that I can compete in. So I think you saw a lot of people that transferred from other sports into triathlon. And um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I know personally in my category, that's where a lot of our, 
our competition came from people with backgrounds in, um, you know, wheelchair racing or cycling and swimming that, you know, they were now in the sport. And so here you had people that were at the top level of their sport, their individual sport now coming in to triathlon. And um, yeah, that's, that's obviously gonna, gonna push the competitiveness of the sport. And I think that was seen probably in a lot of different classes or just um, better opportunities to recruit athletes. Yeah, from from Chicago, was it? It was Edmonton, twenty fourteen, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So from say Edmonton to Lausanne, just like the race itself, the 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 setup and the you know, would you say that there has been progress in the production generally as well? Yes, definitely, definitely. From like a, a organiz, organization standpoint, and then also from. I guess my like level of preparation, <laughs> you know, in 2014, I was still so new. I think I flew in to Edmonton like crazy late. I was there maybe one day before the race, um, you know, trying to make it work with my job at the time. And, and now, you know, I, this is what I'm doing full time is um, training for sport. And, and yeah, I think that's, that's been paralleled in you know, the, the support that we've gotten from World Triathlon and um, in our events and, um, you know, really trying to raise the professionalism of paratriathlon and um, on the world stage. And right before Lausanne, it was the uh, test event as well, right? I mean, felt totally disconnected from the actual event with the, with the delay to the games and so on, obviously. But um, yeah, was that, and you've, did you finish fifth or sixth in that race and I did yeah is is that like a combination of factors or it well for us it was a duathlon um yeah because of the water um but yeah that was that was like the worst (laughs) the worst race that I've ever had um which honestly had I had a lot of anxiety around that leading into Tokyo because yeah this one race that was like really quite disastrous for me was in Tokyo and then here I was trying to go back to Tokyo and perform at my very best and um yeah so I think that I worried a lot about that um going into Tokyo yeah yeah and Lauren obviously you had a you know a great battle in in Lausanne and then heading into Tokyo for the games themselves she was pretty much always going to be the the one to to beat right um yeah yeah it was hot it was humid it was pretty early presumably a lot of you guys were out first though right so there wasn't Mm -hmm. did you feel a huge amount of pressure how were you feeling on that morning and and yeah yeah you know I think for the amount of nerves that I had going into that race like really like the past six months <laughs> leading into that race was just like an emotional roller coaster for me um, of nerves. <laughs> and six months of them. I mean, almost, yeah. Like it, it really, I mean, at that point, I had been doing triathlon for nine years and it just felt like I had been building towards this for nine years and I, I had so much expectations for myself and I knew, you know, my, my teammates had this like amazing belief in me that I was able to win that race. And at times when I didn't believe I could, they did. And so 
I, yeah, I felt a lot of pressure for myself, but also just like really wanting to show up for everyone that has been here for me for the past nine years. Um, but, but yeah, I guess all that being said, I would say that on the morning of the race, I was in fact nervous. I think at that point, like we've gone to so many races before and you have this like race routine that is pretty consistent. And so at that point, it was just about executing that. And I think at that point, it's like, you've done everything you can. Um, there's nothing else you can do besides just execute that plan that you have race morning. And so that I think gave me a lot of comfort of like, I, I know what my plan is, I can just do it. And then whatever happens, happens. Um, yeah, so I think it, it, it's weird how it, your emotions change so much, um, you know, from like the night before to like actually being there and racing. And there was only three of you because the, the first wave was a bit larger as well. Wave probably not the right term, but so yeah, this race that you'd been building up for nine years for, and it, and actually at that start line, just by virtue of the you know the people in it and the the those separation of your category, the three of you, how did that kind of how did that feel? And and then obviously for you, it is always kind of Operation Chase, right? That that's that's the way it works out. So. Yeah, um, I think starting back on the stagger, the like people talk about like race tactics and like, oh, you have to, you know, maybe be tactical here on the bike of like, what are you, you know, when are you going to be pa passing and be smart on your passing? And when you're starting back like that, really the only tactic is go. <laughs> and so like you have to just be full, full speed ahead from, from the start. Um, and and, and yeah, I think um, I kind of knew from the beginning, I know um, Mona from, from France, she, she swims so incredibly and we started together. And um, so I know that I can kind of swim with Mona for the, the first part. And then, yeah, it's really about like trying to just make the people in, in front of you a little bit closer and closer. And um, steadily just like chip away at that time and not panic when it's maybe not going down as fast or at the times that you think it's going to go down because it was going down pretty fast at the start of that, that first bike clap right and it was the, the the gap to Lauren was then like two and a half minutes um so yeah the swim had obviously gone very well <laughs> as yeah. had that first lap the swim is actually the part that made me nervous because I, I normally make up a little bit more time on the swim. And so I came out of the water and I was a little bit farther back than I was expecting. Um, and, and yeah, I think for me, the bike was such an unknown. That's the one area that I've really been working on since Lausanne. Um, and this was the first race where I was going to be racing with Lauren since Lausanne. And so I just didn't know, she's an incredible biker. So I didn't know, you know, you think that you, you know, you've worked so hard on, on this one discipline and objectively you can see that in your numbers, but, but yeah, the other person is the unknown. And um, so I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to make up time at all on the bike. And 
um, so when I, I started to, that was, you know, like really big confidence boost of like, okay, I can, you know, this is actually kind of possible. It's okay that I didn't make up as much time as I thought I could on the, the swim, um, but I'm still making up time on the bike. So just like, keep going. And then coming out of the second transition, as you were coming out of the blue carpet, there was yet to plat, obviously like the Dutch Superman <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of gunned past you. Uh, and, but yeah, by virtue of, of the men and the women all kind of being on the course together at the same time, just, just something like that kind of, can that be quite useful? I always think because, you know, the, the, the wheelchairs and the hand cycles, they, they're hard to maneuver intricately, right? And it must be difficult when, you know, the, there are different speeds and overtaking and so on. Like, obviously, Yetza was, <laughs> was going at quite a lick. Yeah, yeah, I but, thought maybe for a second, I'm like, oh, just stay with Yetzi. But like, that was a pipe dream. <laughs> it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> um but yeah, I think, I think that course, especially it was pretty tight and turny and there's, a, I guess, in comparison to our, most of our races, there was just a lot going on. Like you had the men and the women on the course, but you also had like officials on bikes and a motorbike with the first top three women and men on the course. So there's, you know, at, at max six motorbikes going around on this course and mm. um yeah so there was a lot of traffic and um I think to be honest I, I do think that's where my experience on the Nordic side really kind of benefited me because um managing traffic and like picking lines on a, a ski course is something that we talk about all the time mm. and so so yeah I think that was something that I had confidence in um in the racing chair was just knowing like okay how can I how can I get around these people when it's smart and um yeah maybe what's a line that they might not see on this corner where I can take advantage of that and and take an inside line and pass them on the corner um things like that um where again it was like all of these little experiences and these things that I've learned over the last nine years of doing everything really kind of came into play during that race um was that yeah. almost heightened on that it was a pretty long ramp down into transition wasn't it and there was still a there was a distance still to be made up as you were coming down it so was that part of that finding the right line and it, and it's it's small adjustments isn't it that to when you're going at that speed in those chairs you could see it particularly with Lauren because I think the camera was on her as she was sort of hitting the flat bit but just a couple of like you know small moves with the right hand just to make that little kink turn and hit the final straight yeah that that downhill and that turn was something that I like was thinking about since the test event because we had that same you know same same part of the course at the test event um and I knew that that was going to be a really important part of the course especially if it was going to be a tight finish which I was pretty convinced that it was going to be a close finish or at least was hoping it was going to be um and and yeah so when we got to Tokyo and we were there for the course previews that was something that me and my coach looked at 
um, the days before the race and we really talked about like, okay, how, how are you gonna manage this downhill? How, what's the best way to take this corner so you can maintain your speed but not be worried about tipping over? Um, and, and yeah, so that was, again, it was something where it's like, these are the small little details that all came together um, in order to make that race happen. And have you ever been in a sprint finish quite like that before? Like, or, no. or had to like get that much? Is that the hardest you've pushed yourself in a race, those final few hundred meters? Yeah, well, yes and no. Definitely for triathlon, that's been the tightest race I've been in. Um, but I guess in skiing, we have a sprint event that's like a three minute race. And I'm terrible at it. I really am not a fan of the sprint. And, and so I knew that like sprinting is not my forte. And that if it was going to be a close race, there is a potential for there to be a sprint finish. And I didn't want to be out sprinted or just know that like I hadn't prepared for that possibility. Um, and so, yeah, leading into Tokyo, I worked with my strength coach and my my coach and and said hey like this is a weakness I have and we need to prepare for it and so um yeah trying to build that that sprint speed was something that we we really worked on did you get some good numbers out of it you you have like a little onboard computer to go through after right yeah yeah I do I have a little little computer on the racing chair that I keep track of speed on um and yeah, I think into the finish, we were close to like, I don't know, 16, 17 miles per hour. So um, yeah, really, really quite charging toward, towards the end there. And I was worried there's like a wall of cameras when you, when yeah. you finish. And I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to run into these because the brakes on the racing chairs aren't that great. They're like pretty non-functional. So I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is going to yeah, end Yeah, I mean, that's the last thing you want to be having to think about when you're going full tilt for a medal <laughs> is whether you're going to hit a cameraman on the other side. Yeah, if you can put in requests for Paris, longer finish shoot would be great. <laughs> the commentator said, I think, um, I think he said it looked like you got fire in your eyes. Did it feel, did they feel like they were actually kind of on fire by the time you finished as well? <laughs> Yeah, you know, it was like, I think at that point, I, it, yeah, I, I, there's so many points of the race where I can like very distinctly remember things that I was thinking at that point, and then others that are just a blur, and that was definitely one of those blur moments where I just, yeah, you're not really thinking at that point, you're just trying to move, um, yeah. And a, an amazing way to win a goal, but also a pretty awful way to lose one for, for Lauren. Um, did you, I suppose it's, it's hard to kind of console someone or to speak to someone and you've got so much going on and then you look up and they've probably gone away as well to sort of go through their own process and so on. But um, to think, I, I don't know surely you you if you were in that position you would just it hard not to think about those little moments where you could have saved yourself literally a split second and that could have won you the race and that what if must must be pretty tricky yeah no I yeah we were I guess we didn't talk too much that day but I was able to talk with Lauren quite a bit actually the day after 
Mm -hmm. um, which, yeah, for me was really important just to kind of like, yeah, I mean, she was the reason I was pushing so hard into this race. And so, yeah, I think just the amount of respect for her, her as an athlete that I have, and I guess like gratitude for, for someone to push you like that. Um, it was really important for me to connect and yeah, we've been able to kind of talk with each other a number of times since then. Um, but yeah, I know losing a race like that definitely sparks a whole new fire in someone. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm already kind of exhausted thinking about the work going into Paris because <laughs> she's just going to come back with like, yeah, so much, um, so much drive for that win. So um, it's exciting, but yeah, a little bit daunting. <laughs> She's got, yeah, incredible coming from that other side. Like you mentioned, you know, you, you were born with spina bifida. She lost use of her legs, you know, very recently, relatively speaking. And um, uh, which obviously has its own huge challenges to, to come to terms with. Uh, is that is that something that you've ever thought further down the line you'd quite like to to do you know that sort of advising or uh coaching or just encouraging other people to to take up parathriathlon and and for people who perhaps do find themselves in those kind of situations of having accidents and so on and and yeah i guess being a, an ambassador for the sport in a you know you, you do it on the field of play but you know down the down the road is that is that an area that you ever think about yeah. I guess I haven't really thought about whether like coaching or something like that would be something I'm interested in, but um, I think, yeah, I think regardless of, of what I'm doing, sport is always going to be a part of my life and trying to advocate for people to get involved in sport is something that's really important to me. Um, and, and yeah, I don't, I guess I don't really know what that's going to look like, but um, yeah, hopefully encouraging people to to just be active, whether it's, you know, a kid or someone that's new to this whole thing. And um, yeah. And the, the, the US team going into Tokyo, the, the, the para team, I mean, well, just within triathlon alone was was pretty incredible sort of lineup of athletes and presumably you as a as a national team across all sports were, were together. Yeah, it is cool. You're, you know, in the village, um, you're you're around all the athletes. So, you know, we had like a, a sports med hub and a nutrition hub in our building. And, you know, you pop in there and you see someone that's going for, you know, a final in swimming or, or you know, track and field or something like that. And um, yeah, there's this really kind of like energy around it where people are just excited to be there and excited to compete and really be supportive of one another um and and yeah so so building off that energy of the team in addition to you know the paratri team is is i think really what makes the games experience so unique mm. it's not just another race it's this race within this whole massive event that's a movement in sport it must also make you appreciate 
for those athletes coming from smaller delegations like you know the, the effort and the the dedication and that that it must take when you don't have that kind of support network and stuff as well like the the difference in experience must be enormous right oh yeah totally I mean I think yeah for me that's so important is the team that you have and um you know being a part of the U.S. team that means it's quite large and um and you know from a support aspect but just uh you know like I guess like staff support, but also like team support and uh, teammate support. So when you don't have that, yeah, like so much respect for that because you're kind of there by yourself grinding and trying to make it work and working at such a high level. Um, and it's it's tough. Well, I'm all hoping for a slightly smoother intro to Paris 24, obviously, and <laughs> hoping that that. Yeah whole qualification route is going to be considerably more straightforward um for you now like between now and and the start of March and the Beijing games how's it looking yes yeah you know it's I feel like it's going to go by so quickly we have two more races in Lillehammer and then we have a week in Sweden where we'll have four more races and then we're back just for three weeks um I live in Montana and the in the winter for training now. Um, so we'll be there for, for three weeks and then we leave. Um, so, so yeah, it's really like a month before we leave to compete, which is crazy um, to think about. Um, yeah, and it's just gonna go so quick. Yeah, so carrying on the, the hard work and presumably quite a lot of PCR testing and to, to, to throw into the mix and <laughs> general admin as well, is there? Yes. Yeah. So much. So many tests. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which definitely, definitely adds to the stress for sure. Well, best of luck out there. Presumably then post Beijing, it will be, is, is the focus then going to, you, you'll park the, park the Nordic for a, for a little while, will you? And, and focus to, to Paris. Is that, is that kind of how you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think first on tap is like a, a, really not doing anything for a while um so yeah and then eventually probably getting back into some races this summer um for the triathlon season and yeah yeah, then we'll see after that um not too many plans other than an april full of like a lot of time with family well huge amount of luck to you for beijing i hope it goes well in the next month and two is smooth thanks ever so much it's been fascinating speaking to you. yeah thank you and uh yeah good luck out there thank you All right. <laughs> cheers <laughs>